Welcome to So You Want to Be a Leader, really a Defy Expectations podcast. I'm Helen Honeyset, and I'm usually joined by the wonderful Vicky Hampson, but today you're going to have to explore the highs and lows of leadership today with just me and our guest. We're going to help you navigate the complexity of being a leader from every aspect of the sublime to the truly ridiculous and everything in between. This week's guest is Kurt Tufert, who is a selling skills sherpa, customer engagement whisperer. So welcome, Kurt. It's lovely to have you here. Oh, it's great to be here, Helen. You can find more information about Kurt on our website. Visit www.defyexpectations.co.uk for all of that info. Now, Kurt, at Defy, we talk about creating great leaders who inspire and motivate their teams and others. But one of the things I love what you talk about is who motivates the motivator. So who does inspire and motivate the motivator? Helen, that's a great question. You know, I have a band of other motivators. I've got a band of brothers that I meet with, and we are all in about the same group of people who do this. We lead, we speak, we write, we do podcasts, we give back, we pay it forward. And so we get together at least once a month. And as iron sharpens iron, one person sharpens another. We help each other to stay in that motivational flow. American motivational speaker is Zig Ziglar. And he said, motivation is like bathing. You have to do it every day for it to take effect. And uh, there are days when we're just not there. You know, some days we're not motivated and other days we are. And so to keep the highs high and the lows less frequent, we band together as a band of, of motivators. So you're forming your support network of like-minded individuals who can act as that motivator for you. Yes, which you can apply to every facet of our lives. For everyone who's listening to this podcast, Man, don't do this life thing alone. Find people who will lift you up. Find people who will encourage you. That is so much more worth it than finding people who just want to see you fail. It's that concept of finding your own tribe. If you're a corporate leader, how would you go around initiating that within your organization? Because a lot of the leaders I speak to, they don't want yet another thing to do on their to-do list. So actually, how could a corporate leader in a busy, high-stress environment find and build that tribe themselves? A couple of ways. If you have to be proactive. You have to find the people in your corporate environment who want you to succeed. We all know in corporate environments, it's easy to gather a group of people who can be negative, who can be critical, who can see everything that's wrong with the company. I try to find the people who are on the opposite end of that spectrum who are positive, who see the good. We are launching, uh, or I'm launching with another gentleman, a leadership academy within our large corporation. And that helps take this message and start creating other leaders who can then create other leaders and try to say, look, yeah, don't tell me what you can't do. Tell me what you can do. I understand we have challenges. Everyone has challenges. Here's how we're overcoming those. And we begin to create a culture of a little bit more positivity. And, and that takes the effort, but the return on that investment is so high, much better than being negative. 
So identify those people who are role modeling, the sort of motivation you want to have as well. Yeah, they're examples of good leaders. To be a leader, you have to have followers. And so you find the people who look up to the leaders and we work with those people to generate that positive, not always rah-rah positive. We're not cheerleaders all the time, but we're real, we're honest, we're candid about what we can and can't do. And that really helps cut off some of the people who ju just want to complain. It's easy post-pandemic. Everybody wants to complain. Everybody seems to be in a negative mood. And so we want to break that paradigm little by little. You talked about real there. Real world leaders are very different from some of those that you see in beautiful script or on well-produced videos. Our understanding at Defy is that we've got the scars, we've got the wounds and the war wounds to prove what works and what doesn't. And that's something that we share with the people we work with. What was your greatest leadership challenge and how did you overcome it? And what did you learn as well? Well, I've got so many challenges, Helen. I'll just use a simple one. Leading a large corporation into a new piece of software. Uh, we're rolling out a very complicated piece of software called Salesforce. And it's very much of a enterprise level uh, software package that collects uh, the information on customers for the sales teams to get more effective and more efficient. My biggest challenge is adoption. How do I get another adult human to stop what they're doing, to learn a piece of software that they perceive as management looking over their shoulder, as management being micromanaging? How do I? remove or break through that barrier. And so it becomes more of a we instead of a you against me. Helen, it has been very, very difficult. It's taken us 18 months to roll this out. And there's resistance and there's skepticism. And we are interrupting people's days to do this. And yet I try to portray or paint a picture of the positive. Here's how this will help you. Here's how this will aid you. This, here's how this will help you be more effective and efficient. Well, when I can cross that, I get more people to open to adopting that, uh, that software. I think Salesforce is a really interesting one. One of my big scars is doing a very similar adoption. And I'm a huge Salesforce fan, but there is that sense of it being big brother looking over Very much so. And, and it's the way we in leadership have to portray it. If it becomes something where you must do this because I said so, adoption fails. If it's, hey, some of the other people using it are seeing some incredible results with it. Now it becomes something from the field moving up through the corporation, not the corporation pushing it to the field. So really making sure those real world examples are being seen and everybody seeing what's in it for them. And it really is, boy, I tell you, it really is a what's in it for me kind of a thing. Why am I doing this? I was perfectly fine yesterday before you called me on this. Why do I have to change what I'm doing? People don't like change. We in leadership, hard to get people to change. We who are motivators, hard to get people to change. And yet something about us, we're wired to want to help people change. Just like you are wired to help people change in this podcast. I think it's a really interesting concept because 
we talk about leadership being a learned skill. But I do think that some great leaders or people who are called to lead have a much different attitude to change. It fascinates them. They know that they will go through their fear change like everybody else, you know, sort of they will have those moments of doubt and resistance. And I think it's one of the big lessons I've certainly had is learning to step back and go, not everybody is excited by change. Not everybody is bought into it. Not everyone sort of dives into it with joy like I do. And one of my old bosses, he said to me, change is like a train going through a tunnel. The leaders are usually at the front of the train. We see the light. But we have to remember most of our people are in the carriages still in the dark. And I think it's a really interesting concept of how you can support people to engage with change when we don't see it naturally as something as big or as scary. Exactly. I mean, you know, there are more sheep than there are shepherds and there are more people who lead from the front of the train and the people who are in the carriage. Absolutely. You know, there's just, it is what it is. We, what I see it in, in schools and in, in academia. I see it in business. I see it in athletics. Of course, we see it in many of the uh, different countries, military, where you have a rank and file, and then you have sub leaders and then larger leaders. And, and we just see that there's less people that are in the aspiration of being leaders. But to your point, we have to develop those leaders. We have to develop them in a way that whether it's a servant leader or some kind of a collaborative leader, I believe that those tools can be taught. And I do believe to your point is that there is something inherent about certain people. They just exude leadership. They exude, follow me, I'll get us through this. And we're like, yeah. Good or bad, we have historical lessons of leaders who are horrible in the way that they led. I mean, they were effective. I, I can think of some military turmoils, but I'm not looking at the negative leadership. I'm looking at the leaders who today are making change happen. This is a question that is slightly off topic, but I'd love your perspective on it. Leaders and leadership have held up quite often put on a pedestal and that's sort of the pinnacle of where most people want to be. But we also know that successful businesses aren't run by their leaders you know, leadership matters, but actually it's everybody at all levels of the organization that makes that business thrive. How do we potentially balance the scales a little bit more so that staying as a mid-level or an individual contributor is as a great career path as moving up the ranks to the C-suite? That's a great question. I think it all, it starts with vision casting. How do we cast the vision for, let's just use the example of a corporation. Where is the corporation moving? We could say large corporations like Ford Motor Company, Salesforce, Procter & Gamble. There are leaders, yes, but they cast their vision into their rank and file so that you know when you come to work, you're a contributing member of where that goal or vision is going. And part of the challenge I have in leadership, especially trying to move over 500 people through Salesforce, is casting the vision and communicating it so that the people who are starting to use it feel good about why am I doing this? Where is this going? How do I contribute? The more we can get people all across corporations to feel that they're making a contribution, 
then we as management, mid-level management, maybe reporting up into regional and corporate management, we're moving together. We're moving in a cadence. And that cadence is a positive cadence because we've cast the right vision. Thank you. It's, I mean, it's a topic that fascinates me because whilst my focus is on leadership, I don't want that to be at the detriment of the great work that actually everybody a leader serves does. And we should celebrate. We should find reasons to celebrate what's happening within the corporation. If the company I work for, we're trying as much as possible to catch people doing good things and promoting it through some kind of a newsletter or some kind of an announcement because it matters. It matters and we're in a technology era of social media and the positive things don't necessarily get uh, promoted as much as the negative. And so we're trying to find the promote the, the positive and promoting that. You've mentioned a couple of times that leaderships need to learn or we need to teach leaders. Now, quite often people end up in management or leadership positions because they were a great salesperson or a great engineer or a great, and all of a sudden they just get the nomenclature leader or manager added to their title. You work a lot with young people and giving them those skills in business and leadership and sales and marketing to really help them thrive. But what advice would you give older individuals to get them back into the classroom and to go back to school and to sharpen their swords? That's a great question. You know, there is no expiration date on learning. And I love when I go to my class in the summer and I see not university students. I don't see the 22 to 26-year-olds. I see the 38 to 61-year-olds. And they have such passion and they have so much to contribute. And so I believe that education, especially today with podcasts and TED Talks and other ways of doing online learning, we can all get a little bit better at that one. And I encourage anyone who has just a small, small spark of, of inquiry on leadership, on management, on any of that, there's every opportunity out there for us to learn, every opportunity. Don't give up. Do not give up. Age, age is, is, is not even factored into the equation. Like me, you've got a number of years under your belt and a bit of water's gone under the bridge. Looking back, if you had to do it all over again, what would you do differently? Wow. You know, that's, that's a tough question. One of the things I failed to do is I'm not as present as I need to be with people and whether I'm a student of behavioral styles and, and I, I know that I'm a very extroverted person and I got a lot of things going on in my head. If I had to do it all over again, I would learn to be more present with the people I'm talking to. That would be one. And I would gather a group of people that, that tribe much earlier, start building your tribe at 16. Start building your tribe at 21. Start building your tribe at 30 because there are major life milestones that you are about to get into. And it would be a whole lot better to go through those milestones with a tribe rather than as that person that's an individual, almost desperate, if you will. There's an old uh, American band called the Eagles and they had a song called Desperado. 
and it became a very big hit, but it was all about that one person who was doing it by themselves. And in the American culture here, we have cowboys and the cowboys always did things independently. And I grew up in that culture. Uh, my hero was John Wayne in a cowboy movie. And boy, if he could ride off in the sunset on his horse by himself, he was the hero. Please don't do that. That's just fiction. As soon as I started grabbing people who were smarter than me and surrounding myself with them, I accelerated my ability to figure out life and to get more relevant life skills immediately. I think that's great advice to anybody of any age. Be present and build your tribe. And I think that concept of the tribe, there's so much research coming out now about the impact on us physically and mentally around loneliness. And I think we saw the pandemic really accelerate that spotlight on loneliness as well. So building that tribe, building that support network has never been more critical, I don't think. I absolutely agree with you, Helen. You and I share that passion. I can just sense it on just on how our voice gets energized when we talk about it. When it comes to your role teaching at Houston, you specialize in sales and marketing. What are the skills, what are the really key sales skills you wish everybody had when they went into the workplace? Sure. Well, when I talk about sales, I talk about there's only two things that we sell. We sell trust and we sell value. And those people have to be able to have a feeling of trust in us, the sales pro, or the product or the company that we represent. And we have to be able to add value. And value is defined by the other person, by the customer, by the client, by the prospect. And so our job as sales professionals, and it truly is a profession, is how do I build that trust and rapport with another person? How do I connect with another person? And then how do I, over time, transfer that value or that prospect or that customer client has enough trust in me that they'll share with me what truly is valuable. And then from there, we can sell a cup of coffee to an enterprise level piece of software like Salesforce. So stop thinking about what value you bring and start trying to understand what is valuable in the eyes of your customer or your partner or your kids even sometimes, because that's one of the hardest sales jobs many of us will do. Absolutely. How do we connect with our children, our spouses, the people around us? Uh, there's got to be a genuine level of trust. Do I trust you enough that I could share with you? Or am I just going to say, it's all good. How are you doing? Fine. And you never get past that because we've just got a history of, I don't trust you. Here in America, there's so much media. Just, uh, Everything is negative. How can I trust anything if everything seems to be suspect? Well, welcome to sales. It's harder and harder for us in, in a sales position to be able to build that trust. And so the better you do that, the faster you do that, the more genuine you do that, the easier it will get to that value transfer. And then from there, if it's a right product or service fit, you've got a sale on your hands. As I moved up the sort of sales ladder and I became more successful in the sales profession, I also found that in order to build trust, I had to know myself even more. The bigger the deals, the bigger the customer, the more complex. 
the more trust I had to have in myself, therefore the more knowledge I had to have in myself. How do you help your young people build their self-awareness so that they can truly understand the value that they could bring, why someone would trust them and maybe why they wouldn't? Well, there's, there's so many tools available, whether it's the assessments that most of us go through. I'm a big fan of the DISC assessment. So I sell that, I coach that. That's one way to get self-awareness. The other one is just a want to. I believe that self-awareness is something that you, if you want to strive toward that one and say, I want to become more self-aware. Well, whether it's a psychological self-awareness or a social self-awareness or a mental or emotional or a physical or a spiritual self-awareness, it's right there in front of you. You just have to want it, which means you have to be transparent, which means you have to be open to a little bit of constructive criticism. We see that in athletics and we see that easily that the ones who excel in athletics have a great self-awareness, they have a great coach, and they're willing to do the work that the coach is requiring them to do. And I believe it's the same thing. We've got to be willing to do the work. And, and that requires a work ethic, which requires a tribe, which requires a leader, and <laughs> it requires trust. So these all, they all come together as puzzle pieces. So here at Defy, we like a play on words. We like a good pun. And we also like being a little defiant. So one of the questions we ask every single one of our guests is, if there was a defiant pearl of wisdom that you could pay forward to young or aspiring leaders, what would that be? And I'm getting you, you're going to have to top it on it because that be present and build your tribe advice was pretty spot on. So looking forward to this pearl. So here's the pearl. Do the right thing next and the next thing right. Just do the right thing next and then the next thing right. If you can continue to just think about that cadence, regardless of age, when, you, when you're present, when you're doing the right thing next and the next thing right, it will be remarkable how things turn out. That was, that was a great pearl of wisdom. There's a song in Frozen 2, which is all about do the next right thing, take the next step and the next step. And that's one that always echoes round my head. Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing. Well, if you've been as inspired as we have been with our amazing guest, Kurt, and the pearls of wisdom that he has dropped for us today, Please check back in as we will be running these regularly and we are covering every aspect of the skills leaders will need to continuously develop and evolve to thrive. Look at our website, defyexpectations.co.uk and remember to follow us to get notified of our next episode.